This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampake Pagan. Now, every month we do a live taping of the show over at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue. The bookshop's proprietors, Elaine and Minhan, are kind enough to lend us this space to hold these bookish chats. And every month we have a theme that kind of drives these conversations. In July, that theme was life-changing reads. Here's what happened. Go on and have a listen. Good evening, folks. Thank you so much for uh, joining us over here at Lit Books. This is our third Bookmark and Lit Books session. What happens here, if you're unfamiliar, is we do a live-to-tape session, which we then broadcast on BFM 89.9, where I work and where Cam joins us from time to time. It's a radio station, if you're unawares. You should be, really. There's a show on the radio station called Bookmark that's been running for about nine and a half years now. And we just kind of talk about books and literature and I get authors on and we do a whole thing. This is something new that we're trying out. And every month we do a themed session. I get a panel of speakers. We have a big big old chat about it. But most of all, we like you guys to participate. And uh, today's theme, of course, is life-changing reads or the book that changed my life. And it's, I figured it was a very accessible topic. Uh, All of us here are readers. And I'm sure there are books, there are moments in literature that have kind of um, affected us dearly and which we have been greatly moved by. And I'm hoping that you will share those moments with us today as well. Just a side note, this is also a bookshop, so once we're done, feel free to browse and buy some books. But yes, without further ado, let's begin today's session, uh, Life-Changing Reads. My panelists today are two authors, Cam Razlan and Chua Guat Eng. Before we get into, I guess, our life-changing reads, I I wanted to ask you guys a question, which is something that kind of bothers me, and, and I wasn't sure if it was because we're such voracious readers, whether there's a certain amount of jadedness that kind of seeps into our reading, and whether the more we read, the older we get, whether it's harder or becomes harder for literature and books to kind of affect us in the same way it did when we were younger and wide-eyed. Guat, does literature still impact you in the same way? Some books do. Some books do, not in the same way as uh, when I was a child, obviously, because of my responses. And everything's new. My, my choices of books are very much determined by what I'm interested in at a particular time. So, like right now, because I'm working and thinking about my third novel, and I'm very concerned about the voice of the narrator and the tone of voice and all that, I'm exploring writers, tones of voices and, and voices, that sort of thing. So then if I pick up something that's interesting, then I go into it. I may have hated them long ago, like when I first read Salman Rushdie, but now I'm reading his books and I think, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> That's just right, you know, something to explore. When you're reading these books and kind of 
what's the word I'm looking for, um, by osmosis, taking in these different tones yeah. and voices. What do you hope to get from it? Well, for the second book, Days of Change, the idea that I had to write a sequel to the first novel was already, at the minute I wrote the end of the first novel, I said, my character, Hafiz, needs to be given a chance to talk. And I said, okay, I'm going to write a second novel. Malay man, Malay man, you know, um, Muslim, atheist. <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be somewhat difficult. But life has a way of pushing you along the routes, I find, that you want to take. I decided at some point I was going to do my PhD. My supervisor said, do something about Buddhist philosophy, use it as your framework. And I thought, fine, okay, why not? And then realized I knew nothing about Buddhist philosophy <laughs> and I had to start. And then because I was into Buddhist philosophy, I began to read about Islam because I saw similarities and all that. So one of the books actually that changed my life was um, some of the books I was reading at that time were strangely, were Malay books. Sajarah Malayu was the Quran or the translation of the Quran that I read, the translations of the Quran that I read. So all that, and then reading a lot about Malay culture and talking to, to well, fortunately for me, most of my friends have always been Malays, so it was easier. Um, yeah, so that's how it goes. And then you begin, <laughs> now I can't tell you that I plan it like that, but the way I write, the process is, I slowly become that person. So when I'm writing, I'm not Guat creating Hafiz. I am Hafiz. And I am Hafiz and I'm telling you what is in my mind and what is in the world that I see and how I react to people. I am lost in my narrative in much the same way as when I was a child, I would get lost in other people's stories. I just get lost easily, <laughs> as anybody will tell you. <laughs> what about you? Do you, find, do you find it harder to get moved by literature as you did when, say, you were a child? Um, well, as a middle-aged Malay man, um, <laughs> uh, I would say that I, I'm, not, I'm not as voracious a reader, perhaps, as, as certainly you are. Uma has this uh, actual superpower. He, he can read books in, in like an entire book in a, in a day. It's incredible. I'm not like that. I need to put my finger underneath each word and <laughs> mouth it. Um, read it out loud. Read it out loud, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm a bit slower. But I, uh, I, I, I came to uh, reading a, probably later in, uh, than, than you did as well. Not until really my late 20s did I start reading. Um, but I... Uh, I, no, I, I still do, I still do, but most of what I read is actually history. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by history, and, and I'm always discovering that there are, there are things I don't know. For the last few years now, I've, I've sort of realized, oh my God, I don't know nearly enough about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, Which is a thought all of us have. Well, isn't it? Um, and so I've been immersing myself in, in, in the Habsburg Empire. But, 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 but I'm always reading 
through the prism of, uh, of Malaysia and of what parallels I can find in other places to, to make sense of, of this place. So no, I, 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 as long as I think I find some interest in here, <laughs> I've sh I, I see myself continuing to, to find uh, fascination in, in, write, in reading. But also, I must add also that, um, yeah, a, a while back, I think we've all fallen victim to our, our phones. And, and, and a lot, for a lot of us, our, our reading has actually gone down considerably. So I've actually made a conscious effort to, to get back into the reading and to try to ignore the phone. <laughs> and, and I have re-found books, actually. Um, and it's, it's, it's like being young again as a middle-aged Malay man. As a middle-aged Malay man, <laughs> right? I still get incredibly emotional and moved by literature and, and film. And I think it comes with having uh, to let your defenses down when you're reading. Uh, because a lot of the time, I think we have a critical eye constantly on, right? I mean, it depends what you read for. If you're reading for escapism, then I think it's easy to have your defenses down. If you're watching a movie to escape reality, then it's a lot easier. But for a lot, for, but for a lot of the time, because I guess the nature of the work we do as well, that critical eye is always on. And I think it's important to switch it off. And when you switch it off and you let your defenses down, I think you allow literature to actually wash over you. And therefore, you get moved. You get a life-changing read pop up more often than you think it might. Yeah, yeah, yes. But I think also that the, the kind of being moved that you get from reading a book is very, is very different from watching a movie or listening to music. I mean, you, when, you, when you first asked me the question about life-changing books, I, I, I really couldn't think of any, but I could certainly think of life-changing movies. Right. Uh, because the, the kind of the immediacy of emotion that, that, that they, are, they are playing with and that they have the tools to be able to hit you with. Of course, they've got, they've, got, they've got the music, they've yeah. got the dialogue, yeah. they've got all of these emotionally manipulative yeah. manners. So you're constantly having these epiphanies which, which, which strike one as very much as being, oh, I have been changed. And, and books, books you know, are immersive and they take time and it's cumulative. Um, and I, I think that we, you know, we, we shouldn't be looking for that kind of that, that sort of hit that, um, that a great movie like, I don't know, say, um, Freaky Friday can, <laughs> can do for you. Body swapping is the way forward. Well, L L Lindsay Lohan, you know. There you go. I can't say that it's that clear to me. Um, one of the books that changed me, changed my life, actually, is Northanger Abbey. It was Northanger Abbey. And I read it when I was about 14. And I read it, when I first started reading it, I read it as, you know, Jane Austen. And I thought I would enjoy it as a sort of romance, you know. But I remember so clearly lying on the floor, because the floor was cool and it was hot. And I was reading this book, and I suddenly became aware of what was happening, what the writer was doing, that she was making fun of people like me who read books, who read romances. So, and that stayed with me. That stayed with me because I under, intuitively, I understood irony. And when I was writing my first novel, 
that was it. I, my, I realize now that my narrator was somebody who had spent all her life reading Agatha Christie's, you know, and so on, and Sherlock Holmes. And so when she encountered, she found herself in the middle of this murder, she thought, she became an amateur sleuth, and she said, I'm going to find out who's the killer. That's a, that's, that's a great moment to find a life-changing novel, right? When you know the author is pissing all over you. It's, no, it's, it's like Joyce and Ulysses. I swear to God, that entire book is a prank. It is a horrible prank on book critics, on any pretentious literati. That's what Ulysses is. Did, I, I mean, speaking of... Did you, have you read the entire thing? God, no. no. It's, it's what, Im- have you? No, it's impossible. It's, it's such an impossible read. It is one of those books that is, you cannot critique that book because it's just meandering nonsense. Anyway, anyway, sorry. We're not here to talk about Ulysses. Um, Gwat has something to add about Ulysses. Yes, about Ulysses. Uh, what I, I learned from Joyce's Ulysses, I didn't quite finish it. I started on it, and then I reached a point where I said, oh my goodness, Mr. Joyce, if you're going to make it so difficult for me to understand you, (laughs) keep your secrets. I don't need to know. (laughs) Yes, but it affected my choices, the choices I made as a writer. I told myself I would never write a book like that. No, you're right. Well, well that's, the thing about, that's the thing about Ulysses, right? Ulysses is life-changing in the way that I used to have this philosophy, like if I started a book, I had to finish it. I had to put, just, I bought it, I'm going to finish it, it might get better at the end, right? Who knows? God knows the life of Pi did, right? The whole book kind of centered around the last 20 pages. And, and Ulysses was the first book I realized, you know what, it's okay not to finish a book. It's perfectly okay to let it go. And I think that in that, in that sense, it was quite life-changing. Cam, was, was, was there a particular book that was life-changing for you? Um, well, I, yeah, well, two. I, I brought two along, which I think that... Um, so I am a writer myself, and I, I wrote about 10 years ago, I wrote um, a collection of short stories called Confessions of an Old Boy uh, about a particular character by the name of Dato Hamid. And I've just recently uh, completed, as far as I can, the, uh, a sequel to, to that. And, and very few people have read it, but these two have, actually, um, been very helpful. And, and they will freely tell you it's the greatest book they've ever read. Um, and I have the microphone, Gwat, so you can't say anything. And, uh, and, and so I, when you asked me the question, I, I found two books, which I think have really determined me as a writer, perhaps they found me, it's not like I'm trying to copy, well, maybe I am. One is uh, Flashman. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Flashman. It's a series of books written by a guy called George MacDonald Fraser who died about 10 years ago. And the character of Flashman is, um, he is actually, he's actually a minor character from Tom Brown's School Days, which was a book in turn written in the early mid um, 1800s um, uh, about just how horrible school life was in England. And, and he was the school bully, Flashman. So this guy, George MacDonald Fraser, he then took that character and had him go through all these uh, key moments in um, 19th century history. And he's a coward, um, he's a sex maniac, and but... Uh, everybody, he's a hero, 
despite the fact he's a complete coward and no one's really cottoned on. There's a whole series of books, and when I started reading them, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because it's, it's history and it's funny. I've never read them back again since the 1980s when I read them, and I, and I, I think now I might find them not repulsive, but, but a bit awkward because I read them before I came back to Malaysia. And so the views on the other, on brown people, might be a little bit old-fashioned. Um, and then when I did come back to Malaysia and I read this book, The Proud Tower by Barbara Tuckman, my favorite historian, and she wrote a book, which I think is a very difficult book to write because it's not a linear history, but it's about the world just before the First World War. And it's... And I, when I was reading it, I was just thinking, how did you know this? How did you research this? Every paragraph seems to be 15 different pieces of research from different places, and she puts it together seamlessly, and it's moving. And, and, I, and I kind of felt, as a writer, I want to be these two books combined. Because my, my Dato' Hamid... I've never actually confessed to my love for Flashman out loud in public. Because, because it's, it's, it's not Ulysses. It's, no, it's, it's, it's not. It's low. Um, but I, 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 yeah, it's, it's, they've been very instrumental in determining how, how I write, what I write. But I think that's the key, right? The idea that you can be moved by any piece of literature. It doesn't have to be what is necessarily called high literature, for example. It doesn't have to be award-winning or Northanger Abbey. Um, um, it can be Flashman. It can be a comic book. It can be a great deal of poetry, even. Um, I'm not saying... I, I, I don't mean even like poetry is a bad thing, but, you know. Um, <laughs> no, poets are bad, not the poetry. Um, uh, no, so um, I, th I think for me, there were, there were a couple of books. It was really hard. Elaine and I were talking about doing this session and life-changing reads, and it was really hard sh making a short list because I, I go through these phases, um, like you, Guat, as to reading things that maybe particularly appeal to me. And I found there were books on food writing that changed my life. There were books on... Uh, there were non-fiction books that changed my life. But I think I narrowed it down to two in particular um, that had the greatest impact on me growing up. One wasn't necessarily all that long ago. It was from the year 2000. And um, it's a book called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2000. I think it came out in 99, if I'm not mistaken. And it told the story, um, the, a, a fictional retelling, if you will, of two Jewish comic book creators in the golden age of comic books during World War II. And what was interesting about that book was, I mean, it's beautifully written. Michael Chabon's one of my favorite writers, and I say changed my life because that book kind of inspired, like, I, when I grow up, I want to be like him. But also, everything else that came with that book. Here was a book, a story about comic books that suddenly had literary credibility. Growing up as a geek and you know, having people make fun of you because you like comic books, suddenly here was something that won the Pulitzer Prize. And it kind of elevated this much oft insulted art form into something greater. Sure, Art Spiegelman had done Mouse and there was Persepolis and there was all of that stuff, but people like me didn't read those at that time. We were reading Superman and Batman and here was a story about a character called The Escapist. And essentially, it was manifest from the Jewish escaping the Nazis of World War II, coming to America, and a kind of 
ran parallel to the story of Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman. And it's a wonderful piece of writing. And I think that book moved me in a great way when I was 19 years old, 20 years old. That was something incredibly moving. And I think that book in particular kind of changed my life. The other one was, of course, a book by Graham Greene. Now, a lot of Graham Greene's novels, I think, can change your life. If you've ever read Graham Greene, he is absolutely incredible. He is wonderful. I think it was Graham Greene who said that you know, if you want to be a writer, people keep telling you to set these bars in your head, right, about, oh, you've got to write a thousand words a day in the morning, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, and I, I think it was Graham Greene who only wrote 500, and then he would proceed to get drunk. Yeah, he would write, I think it was more than that, actually, but it was about a thousand, and then he, the second half of the day, he'd be drunk, yeah. yeah. Also wisdom to live by. But uh, Graham Greene's Monsignor Quixote. So one of my favorite books is... Cervantes' Don Quixote. It's widely considered to be the very first novel, and eh, that can, it's debatable, uh, but it's an incredible uh, novel about chivalry, and uh, Monsignor Quixote by Graham Greene was a phenomenal read, because here was the story of a communist mayor of a town and a priest who go on a road trip in a broken-down car called Rosinante, and it's essentially this ongoing debate between the virtues and the values of communism versus Catholicism. And it is just remarkable. It is two people talking for the novel, and it is so compelling, and it is so well-written. And I've read that book like 20, 30 times. I've lost count. I read it at least once a year. And yeah, that's another book that kind of changed my life, just because of the debates and the kind of philosophical arguments that take place and the fact that you can make dialogue between two people debating communism versus Catholicism so riveting and wonderful. Yeah. Could I just add that if, uh, if you do aspire to, to be a writer, and do not read Graham Greene. Because he, I, and I made that mistake actually whilst I was uh, writing this book, because he is so good um, that and it's seamless, and you're thinking, how the hell did he do that? Because it's about life experiences, really, and the man must have lived so many lives to be able to put that together. And it's like, I, you, you cannot possibly write like Graham Greene. And, and, and you think, well, you've got to give up. You can't, it, it, he is so good. Quat, do you have any other books that have been life-changing? Well, I don't want everybody to go away thinking that the only book I ever read, first book in my life, was Northanger Abbey. <laughs> I actually, the book that changed my life in the sense that it made me become a book addict and a story addict was In It Blighton's Noddy Goes to Town. <laughs> read when I was about six or seven. I, I had read lots of books before that, of course. But, you know, for the first time, I picked up a book and I got lost in it. And that is what I still look for in, when I read. To, to be able... And I, I love authors who make me lose myself in their stories, in their world, you know? Uh, in fact, uh, when I was, because I had rejected people like you, James Joyce, and uh, before I wrote my first novel, I read what other Malaysian writers had been writing at that time. There were Scorpion Orchid, Lloyd Fernando. That's right. Right, Lee Kot Liang's Flowers in the Sky, and K.S. Maniam's 
uh, the return or something. Uh, oh my goodness, I'm not going to write like that. And I turned to Graham Greene for refuge and for, for, for you know, lessons in how to write. Uh, there was, I remember so d distinctly going to Graham Greene for advice, if you like. Uh, because I was writing my novel about, it was uh, going back and forth between 1994 and 1974 and going back even further. And the time, if you have tried writing, especially, you know, uh, for new writers, this switching of time, moving from one time zone to another can be quite difficult, quite apart from using past tense and present tense and all that kind of thing. And it was to Graham Greene that I turned, and it was the Quiet American that I read to see how he did it. Yeah. All of his books are also movies, so if you don't want to read them, you can go watch a Brendan Fraser movie, for example. But anyway, another thing, I mean, I'm a, as Cam would often say, I don't necessarily live in the real world. And I think comic books are real, but yes, there are many comic books that are actually I, I find to be life-changing. It's, it's a really obvious one, but uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman series is something incredibly... It was life-changing because at the time I had never read a comic book like it. Here was a comic book that had a supernatural story, if you will, but that was layered so deeply with literary illusions that I am still discovering them today. Um, I bought an annotated edition, and it just makes me feel like an idiot because I'm like, oh my god, it is so dense. There was also a great, there was also a great issue of this particular comic in which uh, the Sandman character uh, works with Shakespeare on a Midsummer Night's Dream, and it was just, it's just this fantastic piece of, it's, it's a fantastic play piece, right? Sorry, yeah, I'm back. Hello. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Neil Gaiman, Sandman. Uh, there are lots of other stuff. I mean, y there is, there is, there is, and, and I'm going to open it up to the floor now and ask your opinions because um, there's nothing to be shy about. Naughty, Flashman, comic books, you know, we're all there. I mean, I'm sure all of you as readers would have read the news about uh, the Booker long list and people seem, the Booker judging committee seems incredibly excited that they've nominated a graphic novel because, as if they've just discovered graphic novels, right? <laughs> and yeah, I think what happens is when you get appointed to the Booker Committee, someone sticks a big stick up your ass, um, and then you become a judge. That's what happens. It, it's interesting because it doesn't matter what you like. As long as it's accessible, as long as it speaks to you, that's what's important, right? Except if you like Rupee Kaur, then I can't forgive you. Uh, let's open it up to you guys. Uh, talk to me about your life-changing reads. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you think. Don't be shy. Oh, look. See, this is what we like. Immediate participation. Uh, so, uh, hold it close to you. Uh, introduce yourself and talk to us about Okay. Hi, I'm Maria. So, um, when Guan mentioned about what made her a book addict, I automatically thought about my favorite book. Not my favorite book, but I would say my life-changing read would be Haruki Murakami's Dance, Dance, Dance. Any Harukis in the house? Sorry, is that what they're called? I don't know. Oh, okay. I just like to call them that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, basically, what made this my life-changing read be the same reason as Quad. It made me just want to read more and more books. And usually, I'm not a big fantasy person, I can't brain it very easily, but the way Murakami puts it, it's not very far-fetched for me. So, um, in most of his books, there's this concept called 
Achiragawa, I hope I pronounced it right, but it basically means the other side in Japanese. So Achiragawa in his books doesn't mean that I have to fall down a rabbit hole or I don't know, I have to like get abducted by aliens or something. I could just take a subway and then it's there's two moons outside. It's one Q84 in 1984. So I guess making a parallel universe that's very relatable made me just want to find out more on his stuff. And since then, I read nine. And then I paused because I got anxiety over thinking that one day not all of his books are going to get translated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but it was a good pause. I got to explore the authors at that at that hiatus, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Murakami is interesting because Murakami is very accessible as a Japanese author because he has such American sensibilities. So for most Malaysians, I guess if we've grown up with exposed to British and American culture, Murakami is an interesting kind of bridge into Japanese literature, actually. Hi, everyone. Oh, hi. My name is Hema. And I love books, obviously, that's why we are all here. So when I saw the event uh, notification on the Lead Books page, I was pretty sure that most people would bring really serious literature. And I was hoping that you all wouldn't laugh at uh, my choice of books. <laughs> most of us, I think most Malaysian kids who grow up to be readers as adults cut their teeth on Enid Blyton, like Goat and myself. So. Um, I can, I can know where I was uh, at every moment of my life when I received and read a book that changed my life. I remember I read Roots at 9, I read Pride and Prejudice at 10, I read my first Christie book at the age of 13, I've read so many wonderful books since then. But it all starts with this, and I remember exactly when and where. It was November 1989, I was 7 going on 8, it was uh, the school holidays, I know, because it was the morning, I was at home, I was playing, and I did not have that feeling, you know, the feeling you have, like, oh yeah, in a few minutes I have to go and bathe because, you know, I have to go to school in the afternoon. I did not have that feeling. So I know it was the school holidays, and my mother had gone to the market. And I knew she wasn't at home, that's why I had to do what I did, and I wanted to go into a cave. And what do you do when you want to go into a cave? You go into the wardrobe or the closet, right? So I opened the three-door closet. <laughs> I, I never done that before. I don't know why I did it that day. I opened it and I went in and all my mother's saris were hanging, all the beautiful saris, the expensive ones hang and the not so expensive ones we folded down there. And I climbed in. No, I was little. I climbed in and then I was like, there's something odd here. What is this? And there were two books. You know, she had bought this for my birthday, which was well, a week later. Ah. <laughs> 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 You know, and I started, and this was the book I started on, The Children of Cherry Tree Farm. This was my very first Enid Blyton. You know, and I still remember the first chapter where Penny and Rory and Sheila and Benji are sitting in that room upstairs and they're looking out at that cherry tree, you know, and then Penny comes running up and then it's like, oh, we're going to the country. This was the book that started it started me on that journey because I was lost in this book and then she came back, of course. <laughs> so I would throw the book inside and run out and pretend like nothing happened. And I received the book uh, one week later, both the books, you know, and I felt very sad. 
<laughs> no, I felt very sad because I already read it halfway. <laughs> and I was hoping she would get more books. Just like, I kind of guessed that you had done that, you know. And, and I owe my parents a great deal because the books that they gave to me, a lot of the rings, that Sherlock Holmes books, the Harry Potter books, the Agatha Christie books, the Austin books, uh, the Brontes, the Dickens, uh, and my parents were not book snobs. So I had all kinds. I had Stephen Hawking, I had self-help, we had spiritual books, we had religious books, you know. And they never forced it on me. They'd be like, okay, these are the books in the library. Read them if you want to, and then we can talk about it. You know, but this, this and I think every child who's as fortunate as I was to start out with Enid Blind Books, you know, it's been a really magical journey for us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say a few words about Enid Blyton. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to burst your bubble. Uh, but uh, um, writers have very boring, boring lives because, you know, writers just sit around and just write. That's all they ever do. So, uh, but Enid Blyton is, is uh, a real enigma, um, <clears throat> one hell of a character. And you mentioned Agatha Christie, and she was a fascinating person. Uh, yeah. Uh, a remarkable uh, young life as well. But Enid Blyton was, um, th I think she is in the Guinness Book of Records as the most prolific writer of all time. Um, and, and I had a, a girlfriend who was doing an art piece about uh, Enid Blyton and her school in Kwantan. She went back to the school and in her day, all, all the girls were taking out the book all the time from the library. So the names were like, as soon as it, the book came in, it was going out. And then she, she noticed that there was a sudden drop-off in the reading of Enid Blyton. I think it happened around 1988 or something. Just suddenly, like, nobody read it. And so you're, you're kind of like the last <laughs> gasp to get it. But, but she, she was um, a prolific writer, children's books. Um, and she actually had two children herself, two girls, who she treated kind of very badly. And uh, one of the things that uh, was surprising was that one of the girls, she didn't even know that she was Enid Blyton's daughter until she was about 10 or so. She assumed that she was an employee because she would line up with the staff to get her pocket money at the same time they got their pay. Enid Blyton would have uh, these wonderful tea parties with, with children to which her own children were not allowed to go. And, and more besides, but it's... it's you know, these contradictions happen between writers, the, the remarkable love that they can put into their work, and yet their lives themselves are, might not necessarily be that. Be disasters, yeah. Yeah, so, so actually reading about you know, blindness is, is amazing. And it'd be interesting to know, I don't actually know offhand, what her sales are like now compared to certainly throughout the 70s and stuff. For those of you who like science fiction, I have to tell you that was for me quite life-changing as well. My first, you know, when I first encountered science fiction, uh, I thought fantastic, you know, really fantastic. And I started reading quite a bit of, of science fiction, yeah. And the one that stayed with me for a long time, <laughs> because it was such a big book, it had to stay with me for a long time, was Dune. Oh, yes. Dune. I read it and I oh, wow. And I couldn't put it down. And I bought all the subsequent bits, you know. Available in store. <laughs> right. 
It was so fascinating for me because by the, by the time I got to reading it, I had become uh, familiar with Joseph Campbell and, and anthropology and culture and all that. So there was this awareness of all the things that he was bringing from different cultures into, into this fantasy world, you know, and it was really great. Frank Herbert's amazing. So uh, actually, Dune and I guess the stories surrounding Dune are also just as fascinating. There's a documentary called uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Alejandro Jodorowsky was one of the people who was originally trying to adapt Dune, which is widely considered as a rather unadaptable book. Many people have tried. David Lynch tried. Eh, the movie was all right. Sci-Fi Channel did a movie. It was all right. But Jodorowsky's Dune was quite interesting because he, you know, he had hired Salvador Dali to play a part and, 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 and all these things really tie in to the kind of myth that this book has taken on, right? And it's the same with Watchmen. Um, Alan Moore's Watchmen is widely considered to be the greatest graphic novel of all time because it kind of puts this spin on superheroes that never existed before. But yet again, the stories and the processes behind the making of that book are just as fascinating because if you look at Alan Moore's scripts in writing something like the like Watchmen, Alan, Alan Moore is a genius in the sense that uh, how most comic books work they follow what's called the Marvel method, where a writer will write something, they hand it over to the artist, and the artist kind of imagines what the writer's going to write, and then draws stuff. And there's a kind of mutual understanding between both writer and artist. Alan Moore doesn't work like that. Every panel is described in such vivid detail. He will tell you where the clock is to be placed on a shelf and what time is shown on the clock. There is such intricate detail in everything that you know you know for a fact when you're reading every page that everything belongs there. There's nothing by chance. It was just, it's incredible stuff. You're still not going to convince me with comic books. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. This evening started so well. We were talking about Joyce and, uh, you know, and now it's sequential art and, and stories about giant worms in the sand and stuff. Uh, if, I may, if I may raise the tone. <laughs> Um, Asterix. Um, I think we, we seem to be going back in time with all... I think if we're looking for the things that have moved us, we, we, we all seem to be going back to the originals. And I actually... Um, in, in our household, my brother, Karim, was the reader. He read everything, and he, he, he just... It, it sort of set a challenge to me, which I didn't even bother to try to step up to. Um, and I became fascinated. We used to get this uh, weekly magazine called Look and Learn for children. Uh, older people might know it. Mm. And um, I became fixated by the pictures. I always looked at the pictures. Um, my brother read the words. <laughs> and he went to Cambridge. Uh, <laughs> I, I looked at the pictures and I did not go uh, to university. Um, and so actually I, I became a filmmaker, really, I think. Uh, because of that, and I, I came to, to writing, uh, sorry, reading later when I moved back to Malaysia and the bookshops were not as they are today. Um, it was quite hard to find books. I, in those days, I, I, had, I had money, um, which I then, I do not have anymore. <laughs> uh, but I used to go back to London and it was the most thrilling thing to, to be in Waterstones and, and just pick up as many books as I wanted and stack them high and then ship them back to Malaysia and then I'd read them over the next year or so. Uh, so it was actually loneliness that um, drew me to reading and it may be, maybe these are themes that maybe we, we can share, we have as well. It's like a, a 
privacy and a loneliness and a, a, a desire to be in your own little world? Reading is a solitary endeavor. There's, there's, it is not a communal activity, right? I mean, Amir Muhammad, the writer and publisher, has this quip that he always makes when he goes to a literary festival. Um, he goes, you know, at a film festival, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to watch movies. But what the hell do I do at a literary festival? Am I just supposed to sit there and read books? Um, uh, and it's not something you do as a, communal, uh, as a communal endeavor. And so therefore, yes, I think loneliness, solitariness, um, privacy, these are all things that kind of push us to read. Yeah, but I, I, I do want to say this. I have long been addicted to uh, detective stories. And I think it's because... I find detective stories actually very intellectual because there's a lot of logic working. You've got to work things out and all that. Um, I, I was a great one for puzzles, you know. Give me a puzzle and I'll sit there I mean, and work on it until I got it right. So I naturally went for for uh, detective stories and crime-solving things. And I have to say this when I was working on my first novel because I knew it was going to be a murder mystery. <clears throat> I thought, gosh, I've got to write a murder, my own murder mystery, you know, do my own. I went to the PGA library and fortunately for me, they had a whole lot of gold dagger and silver dagger novels. And I read them all. I read them all. What did I learn? I learned so much about the narrative art. I learned so much about how to tell a detective, uh, a murder mystery through whose voice and who's looking at it and so on so that it doesn't end up being like another Agatha Christie. If you know, you get a little bit tired of Agatha Christie somewhere in your youth, I hope, because you suddenly realize, oh gosh, it's usually something we never expected, like some unknown aunt coming <laughs> from Australia, you know, and she's the murderer. That's a bit of a cheat. No, the real crime fiction are those where it's, you know, the lock room mystery. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is always yeah. the killer. Yeah. So there's always an intellectual element involved in in pulp fiction. That being said, Murder on the Orient Express is an absolute masterclass in narrative and structure. Hi, my name is Maslina. Okay, the books that changed my life is basically, um, of course, uh, I grew up reading Enid Byton and the magic for away tree was the refuge. It was a place to go when you are sad, when you are lonely, when you are alone. So throughout my varsity days, even now, when I'm feeling blue, I would read it back. <laughs> just to, to enjoy the, uh, the moon face, the silky, just, just, just to enjoy that moment. And another book that um, basically changed my life was when I was about 10, and I was not an only child, but I was the youngest child, and the brother before me was nine years older than me. He was home for the holidays. I kept pestering him and bugging him, so he had this copy of uh, Irving Shaw, Rich Man, Poor Man. So he just gave it to me, just to hoping that will make me go away. It was definitely not age appropriate <laughs> at 10, but I found that it's a very interesting book. I can't remember the story now, but it was um, changing, uh, life-changing in the sense that 
I might not be able to travel everywhere in the world, but through books, I'm, I am able to do so. So now what I do is, I have a, a, a world map, and then I, every time I read a book and there's a town or city, I will take it. So, so I've, been, I've been to various places. I've been to India, I've been to South America, I've been to Alaska, I've been to everywhere. And another book, um, it was not really a book, but a condensed book, Reader Digest condensed book, called Trisha. This is about a girl in Alaska who lost her father. And I read that book about a few months after I lost my father. So I was nine, and one line in that book, it says that I would never hear his laughter again. And that point, I realized through books, it can, it be, it can so be connected to your life even though there's some stranger elsewhere reading the same book. So, well, we have, our library at home is bursting at seams. We have even the library at the toilet. So, well, there's many more books that change, but I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. I tell you, books that aren't age-appropriate really change your life. <laughs> they do. They do. Michael Crichton's Rising Sun, which was a cop murder mystery. I read that far too young and learned what autoerotic asphyxiation was. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Anyway, folks, uh, we're, we're going to be around, uh, but we'll end the session now because if it goes on any longer, it just takes me a really long time to edit this episode before it goes to air. And we've already been going on for like an hour and 10 minutes. So, uh, but feel free to talk among yourselves and Cam and Gwat will be around. Uh, but thank you once again for joining us. Don't forget, tune in to BFM 89.9, not just for books, but for other stuff as well. Cam hosts a show called A Bit of Culture, which is twice a week. I host at the movies along with Bookmark. Gwat's books are actually available here. I've interviewed her a couple of times uh, as well. So you can hear her talk about a lot of other things on our various podcasts and yes once again this is a bookshop with lots of books so feel free to browse and buy stuff thank you very much and there you have it yet another edition of bookmark live at lit books i would like to thank guat eng and cam for agreeing to be on my panel i would like to thank elaine and minhan over at lit books for so graciously hosting us go check out the store it is a book lover's paradise our next bookmark live event will be next week that's thursday the 23rd of august at lit books search for them on facebook for more information i hope to see all of you there you've been listening to bookmark this is bfm 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.